Years ago, evangelist John Wesley was riding his horse one day when it suddenly dawned on him that he had not experienced any persecution for the last three days. So he stopped his horse by some bushes, he got on his knees, and he proceeded to ask God if there was any sin in his life that was preventing some persecution. But unbeknownst to Wesley, at the same time that he was praying, a man who was known for his hatred of the gospel happened to pass by and looking over the bushes, recognizing Wesley, he thought that this was a golden opportunity to inflict some pain on the Methodist preacher. So he picked up a brick and he tossed it over the bushes, hoping to hit Wesley. Now, the brick did miss the evangelist, but Wesley was so thrilled at this attempt to hurt him that he got up from his knees and said, thank God it's all right, I still have his presence. Now, what would compel John Wesley to thank God for persecution? And why was he so concerned that when there was just a brief absence of persecution in his life, you would think that he would have been glad to just get a break from being harassed, but he wasn't. You see, Wesley, Wesley interpreted a lack of persecution as an indication that there might be some sin in his life that made him appear less Christ-like and therefore more attractive to the world so that the world would just leave him alone. And the reason that he viewed life this way was because John Wesley understood the meaning of Christ's last beatitude found in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles there. Here's what Jesus said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now, these words form the fourth and the final beatitude given by Jesus at the start of his sermon on the mount. And though this one sounds similar to the previous three beatitudes, because there's a blessing at the beginning, there's a reward mentioned at the end, this beatitude, though, is different from the previous ones. And it's different, folks, in two ways. First of all, it's different from the other Beatitudes in that this is the only Beatitude that Jesus elaborated on. The other Beatitudes are presented in brief and pithy statements, but this one is expounded upon by Jesus. And not only expounded upon, but Jesus actually repeats himself in this Beatitude. I say that because in Matthew's account of the same Beatitude, he records Jesus saying not once, but twice that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. Here's how Matthew's version reads. It's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the repeat. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the question is, why would Jesus feel the need to repeat as well as expand upon this beatitude? Well, I think the reason is somewhat obvious. Imagine listening to Jesus give this beatitude for the very first time. You're there, you're sitting in the audience, and you hear him say this. And hearing him say that those who are persecuted are blessed, that had to sound absurd 
to his audience, his original listeners. You see, the belief that someone who was persecuted was blessed by God, that was a concept foreign, completely foreign to Christ's Jewish listeners. This is a Jewish audience. It was just a foreign concept to them, just as it is to many today. The common belief held by first century Jewish people was that suffering was a sign of divine displeasure, certainly not divine blessing. The view that God-blessed people were slandered and insulted, it just must have sounded like nonsense to the people who heard our Lord speak that day. And so it's very likely that Jesus repeated the thought of God blessing the persecuted in order to help these people receive such radical teaching. It really was radical teaching. In other words, an incredible statement like this, it just had to be repeated to make sure that the people heard him correctly. So they wouldn't have to say, did I just hear him correctly? Yeah, he repeated it so we would get it. Second difference between this beatitude and the previous three is that this fourth beatitude is the only beatitude that Jesus doesn't speak of a specific character quality. As you'll recall, the purpose of the beatitudes is to declare what citizens of Christ's kingdom are like in terms of their character makeup, in contrast to those outside of the kingdom, namely non-believers. And that's why each beatitude has been focusing up to this point on a unique character quality found only in those who have been converted to Christ. That's how three of the beatitudes prior to this were presented, but that's not the case with this fourth one. Because instead of mentioning any specific character trait like the previous three, the fourth beatitude states what will happen to us, note this, because of our character. You see, what Jesus is saying is that persecution will come to those who are beatitude-type people. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who weep over their sin. This is why the Lord ends the beatitudes with this very one dealing with persecution. He did it this way in order to impress upon his followers the truth that citizens of his kingdom are going to be hated and going to be despised because of their character. You see, by doing this, Jesus was teaching that those who have been transformed by God's grace are going to be persecuted because they are so different, so distinct from everybody else. The Lord was sending a strong message to all of his followers down through the ages, including us, that because of our transformed kingdom character, we can expect persecution. Now, folks, this is a critical truth for us to understand. And I say that because there are some people who completely missed the point of this beatitude because they think that Jesus is addressing the subject matter of persecution, mistreatment in general. And that's not the case. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the persecuted. He said in Matthew's version very clearly, defining the theme of this beatitude, he said in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It's about righteous character. In other words, this beatitude isn't about being mistreated merely because you claim to be a Christian. It's about persecution that comes as a result of being a Christian who is righteous in character and righteous in behavior. But I'm afraid there are some believers who have never quite grasped this truth. 
You see, there are some believers who think that they are being persecuted for their Christianity when in reality, they're being persecuted for their failure to live out their Christian faith. People like this tend to interpret any and every criticism directed at them as persecution for their faith when that's not necessarily the case. Here's author Kent Hughes' insightful take on why some believers run into trouble with the unsaved. He said, and I quote, Sometimes they're rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities. They're rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they are discerned as proud and judgmental. Others are disliked because they're lazy and irresponsible. Incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. Those are painful words, but very, very true. So folks, a word to the wise. Make sure you haven't brought about your own troubles with non-Christians by being abrasive or pushy or a nuisance. This beatitude has nothing to do with suffering that comes from our own sinfulness. This final beatitude is about suffering at the hands of others strictly because of righteousness, godly behavior, and attitude. Therefore, as we approach our study this morning, we should be thinking about a number of important questions that this subject of persecution for the sake of righteousness raises. Questions such as, why would the world hate beatitude type people? In view of some of the Beatitudes, especially from Matthew's account, you would think that humble, merciful peacemakers would be honored by the world, not scorned. So why do they dislike us so much? Another question we need to explore is, how exactly does the world persecute us for living according to God's standards? That is to say, what forms do persecutions take? Do we have to undergo physical pain in order to experience legitimate persecution? Or does persecution come in a variety of ways? And still another question related to our study is what should be our response when we face persecution? Should we react with self-pity? Should we react with anger? Should we retaliate against those who hurt us or just have a sort of grin and bear it stoic response? I mean, the question is, how does God want us to respond when we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Well, these and other questions will all be addressed as we dig into these verses and discover what Jesus meant by what he said in this last beatitude. Now, in looking at these verses, we see that Jesus structured his words in such a way that they reveal three basic truths about being persecuted for righteousness. This morning, we're going to look at the first of these truths. But before we do, we first want to understand some essential things about persecution. And so turning to Matthew's version of this beatitude, since this is the more detailed account than what we find in Luke, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus began his remarks about suffering for the sake of righteousness as just a matter of fact, a statement, a statement of certainty, something that's inevitable, something that's unavoidable. He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now with these words, our Lord clearly declares that citizens of his kingdom can expect to be persecuted for living righteously. As long as citizens of the kingdom are living in this sinful, fallen world, there will be persecution from those outside of his kingdom, and it'll come to them because of their righteous beatitude-like 
lifestyle. That is, in essence, what our Lord is saying. During a very difficult time in Charles Spurgeon's life, when he was distressed by a lot of criticism, and believe me, Charles Spurgeon experienced more criticism than almost anybody that I'm aware of. At that time, his wife printed all the Beatitudes on a large sheet of paper, and she tacked it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted these truths to saturate his mind day and night, especially the truth about persecution for righteousness, because it's just a fact. It's just a reality. It's something that all true followers of Christ can count on as happening to them with absolutely no exceptions. Because Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no debate about it. Therefore, because persecution for righteousness is unavoidable, it's important for us to understand the most fundamental of all issues with this subject, we want to know what the word persecuted or persecution actually means. Well, this word in the Greek language originally had the basic meaning of pursuing or chasing or or driving away as one would drive away somebody. But over the years, and this is the way that language works, over the years this word developed so that it came to be associated with any type of physical persecution and unjust treatment, any type. So the essential thought then, folks, behind this word persecution is harassment. That would be a good synonym for this, harassment. You could actually translate this beatitude, blessed are the harassed. Jesus was simply stating that as long as citizens of his kingdom, those who followed him, as long as we live on earth, we can expect to be harassed and hassled by unbelievers. Now understand, in saying this, the Lord wasn't saying anything that had not been said before. Because the Bible teaches from cover to cover that the righteous are persecuted by the unrighteous. In fact, the very first incident in Scripture of the ungodly persecuting the godly set the pattern for all persecution to follow, and therefore it became the prototype of all persecution. It's found in the story of, in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, murdering, slaying his brother Abel. And because it was the first incident, as I said, of the ungodly persecuting the godly, it's used in Scripture to explain persecution against the righteous. For example, the Apostle John used Cain's behavior as an example of the type of persecution that all believers can expect. Here's what we read, 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, if that's all that we were told, we could just leave it there and say, okay, that's an isolated incident. But John doesn't do that. The very next verse by the Apostle John is this. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. In other words, don't be surprised if the world hates you like Cain hated his brother Abel because their deeds are also evil and yours are righteous. He's saying you can expect it. It's the prototype. 
Jesus spoke of the death of Abel in the same way. In order to convey that his persecution, Abel's persecution, illustrates all persecution against the righteous. Here's what the Lord said, no less to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And he said these words in Matthew 23, starting in verse 34. Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Meaning, I'm sending to speak to you, you Pharisees, these wise men, prophets, and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, Jesus mentions two men here. Abel and a man by the name of Zechariah. It was not the prophet Zechariah, another Zechariah. Because these were the first and the last Old Testament martyrs. And the Lord's point in giving these names to the Pharisees was to say that from the beginning of time until now, God's spokesmen have experienced persecution at the hands of the ungodly. And to you Pharisees, he's saying, and you will continue to persecute them as well. And people who are just like you will persecute them as well. Now, the rest of Scripture affirms the validity of the statement. All of the righteous Old Testament prophets were persecuted by the unrighteous. All of them. Moses by Pharaoh. David by Saul. Elijah by Jezebel. Nehemiah by Sanballat and Tobiah. Jeremiah was beaten and thrown into a mud cistern. Tradition has it that the prophet Isaiah was dismembered by a metal saw. No wonder Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, said to those who were about to kill him, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That is to say, you persecuted them all. But it wasn't just high-profile prophets who experienced persecution during what we would refer to as the Old Testament era. Many other believers whose names we just don't know were also persecuted for their faith. As we read in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 36, one of my favorite passages because of the very last verse. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treatment. And here's the statement I just love. Men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. These men were so much greater than those who persecuted them. The world wasn't even worthy of them, but they were persecuted. And persecution of the righteous continued into the New Testament era. The book of Acts, which you well know, records the early history of the church as the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it mentions many, many incidents of persecution in those formative years of Christianity. We know that all of our Lord's apostles were murdered for their faith, with the exception of the Apostle John, who suffered by being exiled to the island of Patmos. In fact, the most prominent of all the apostles, the Apostle Paul, listed in 2 Corinthians some of the very specific afflictions that he was forced to endure for the cause of Christ. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 24. Five times... 
I received from the Jews 39 lashes. They were not allowed to give more than 39, so he received the maximum. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is what Paul endured for the sake of Christ. But it wasn't only apostles who faced such hardships in the early days of Christianity. The early Christians in general, the lay people experienced a great deal of persecution at the hands of government officials. Some were burned at the stake. Some were thrown to lions. Many were tortured at the command of the Emperor Nero. One historian gave a very graphic description of the atrocities that Nero imposed upon Christians. He said this, Nero wrapped the Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They're tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Red hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their bodies. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. It's horrible. And folks, don't be naive. Persecution continues today. Christians all around the world are still being persecuted. Listen, just because we haven't experienced much, at least physical persecution for our faith in in America, it's wrong to assume that the horrors of persecution ended centuries ago. Just last week, we heard here at Lakeside how the believers in Benin and Togo, who are associated with SOS Ministries, we've heard how they are under assault. According to one Christian organization that keeps track of persecution around the world, assaults against believers are not slowing down. They're on the increase, on the rise, as the statement that I'm about to read to you reveals what took place in the year 2021, just last year. I quote, in the past year, now catch this number, 360 million Christians or one in seven believers around the world suffered significant persecution for their faith. Every day, every day in 2021, an average of more than 16 believers were killed for following Jesus. With close to 6,000 total martyrs, 2021 saw a 24% increase in Christians killed for the faith. Amazing. See, all citizens of the kingdom of heaven in every era of history have experienced persecution for the sake of righteousness. And we will continue to experience persecution until Jesus returns. So the questions then become, what does persecution look like? Why are we being treated this way? And what should we do when we are treated this way? So to find answers to these questions, we need then to begin to unfold the meaning of our Lord's words in the fourth beatitude. And the first thing that Jesus tells us about persecution is that number one, persecution comes in a variety 
of forms. That is to say, it comes in a variety of ways. There's no one way fits all. So, here's what Jesus said at the beginning of Luke 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil. Now, it's clear from these words by Jesus that contrary to what some people may assume, persecution is not limited to being physically attacked or being killed for the faith. Persecution is much broader than being martyred. Though certainly this is not an exhaustive list, Jesus spoke of four ways that the world persecutes Christians. First of all, he said that persecution comes in the form of hatred. They will hate you. This is where all persecution begins. Persecution for Christians begin here. It starts with unbelievers having a deep-seated contempt, disdain, hatred in their hearts against the people of God. So the question is, why, why is this the case? Why do unbelievers hate us so much? Well, Jesus gave us the answer. We, we don't even have to guess at this. Jesus gave us the answer very clearly in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. On the night that he would soon be arrested, Jesus first said this to his disciples. He said, if the world hates you, and the thought here, folks, is not if the world hates you, as in, well, they might not. The word if should be translated since. Since the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, in these two verses, we're given the reason why the world of unbelievers hate us. It's because Jesus, note this, He's changed us since we're no longer of the world. We've been taken out of the world. We're not like the world of unbelievers anymore. Having sovereignly removed us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, the Lord has brought us into his kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness. And therefore, by virtue of that inward transformation of character, this regeneration that took place at our conversion, we're now different from the world, meaning unbelievers, and we're different in terms of our character, different in terms of our attitudes, different in terms of our actions, activities. And as a result, we remind them of Jesus himself. And since they hate Jesus, but can't persecute him, why can't they persecute him personally? Well, he's in heaven. They can't get to him. They then turn their attention upon us. Just as Christ's righteousness was a constant rebuke to unbelievers, so our transformed character serves as a constant reminder, a constant rebuke to them as well. If we were still like them, they'd have no problem with us because Jesus said the world loves its own. It's just because we're not like the world anymore that they don't like us. They not only don't love us, they despise us. We no longer behave like them. They hate us. Now let me illustrate how this works in terms of the great truths from the Beatitudes. Jesus said that citizens of his kingdom are poor in spirit, meaning that we recognize our spiritual poverty. We're destitute sinners who have no merit to offer God. But that attitude clashes 
with our world that admires pride and self-sufficiency. So they hate us for this. Jesus said that believers mourn over their sin, but our world hates the thought of personal sin and isn't interested in mourning about anything. All they want to do is be happy. Jesus called us gentle, but the world hates humility and considers gentleness a weakness, certainly not a strength of character. Jesus said that we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, but the world finds righteousness repugnant in today's permissive and lustful society. Jesus said we were merciful, but mercy is completely out of step in a world that holds grudges and refuses to forgive others. The world hates mercy. Jesus said that we were pure in heart, meaning what? Meaning that we have single-minded devotion to him. But our world, our world sees it differently. This runs completely contrary to a culture that encourages self-focus and self-love. And Jesus said that we were peacemakers because we resolve conflicts by addressing the need to repent of sin. But we live in a world that loves to argue and fight and resist those who point out their sin. This is why the world hates us. This is why they persecute us. Because everything we stand for, because everything in terms of how we've become like Christ, the world opposes and scorns. As one Bible teacher put it, he said, persecution is simply the clash between two incompatible value systems. He's absolutely right. See, folks, our character is a protest against the ungodly and their self-centered character. We've become sort of a, a moral conscience to our culture because our changed and new character, it just serves as a rebuke to their sinful character and it bothers them. They're convicted, even if they don't articulate this. This is what they're feeling. They hate us for it. And this inner attitude of contempt and hatred then is expressed in some very outward acts of persecution. The first outward act of persecution, which is the second way that Jesus said the world persecutes us, is that he said they will ostracize you. So what does it mean to be ostracized? Well, the word literally means to separate. And in this context, Jesus is speaking of being separated from the Jewish community by being excommunicated from the synagogue. Remember, he's speaking to Jewish believers, separated from your synagogue. Frankly, to a Jewish person, nothing was worse than this, because excommunication meant being cut off from your family, your relatives, your friends, your neighbors. It meant that you were now a social outcast and most likely bound for financial ruin since other Jewish people would no longer do business with you. Now, in John chapter 16, Jesus very plainly spelled out this to his Jewish disciples that they could expect to be expelled, excommunicated, what we would call church discipline, expelled from the synagogue. He said this in John chapter 16, 1 and 2. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So he's telling them this so that they're not blindsided so that they don't say, where did this come from? He's telling them, expect it, it's coming. They'll make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Now, Jesus warned them that this was coming. And as I've already said, for a Jewish person to be put out of the synagogue was the worst thing 
imaginable because it meant being cut off from your circle of family and friends. It meant being rejected by your very society, your very community. You were alone. Folks, you don't have to be a Jewish Christian to experience this because in principle, this still happens today to all kinds of Christians. Even if you've never been officially excommunicated from the religious organization you grew up in, some of you know the deep pain that comes from parents and family members who hold to a different faith. Maybe it's the Catholic faith. Maybe you came from a Jewish home, a liberal Protestant home. And in coming to Christ, you have been the recipient of their anger, and they say such things to you as, how could you do this to us? What an embarrassment you are to this family. What will our friends and relatives think when they hear about your faith? In fact, you may not be aware of this, but Orthodox Jewish parents will often hold a funeral, a literal funeral, when one of their children comes to faith in Christ. They still do that today. Listen, by saying that his disciples could expect to be ostracized by being thrown out of the synagogue, Jesus was teaching that sometimes the strongest persecution comes from those who are religious, but without Jesus Christ. So don't be shocked when it comes. Remember, it was the Pharisees, the religious Pharisees who gave Jesus the most trouble. Don't be surprised by religious persecution. Religion with its works salvation of human effort is no friend of Christ and no friend of the gospel of God's grace. Now still another way that Jesus said we could expect to be persecuted, and this is the third way, was by insults. The Greek word meaning to be attacked with abusive words. To be verbally assaulted is the thought. In other words, when the world persecutes believers, it sometimes persecutes us by the things that they say about us. Words that can hurt and cut us deeply. As someone has well said, persecution can take the form of slander as well as slaughter, and there are times when the tongue inflicts deeper wounds than any sword. Some of you know only too well the pain that comes with insulting words of persecution. So what are some of the hurtful, unkind, cutting remarks that non-Christians say about Christians? Well, we're often accused of being narrow-minded, right? Unloving, homophobic, judgmental, intolerant of other people's views, religious fanatics, and archaic and outdated in our morals. I remember when I was a new believer, some Jewish people said to me, you are a Jesus freak. I'm not a freak. You know. But that was, that was the term back then. You're a Jesus freak. At other times, these insults can take the shape of being laughed at, being cursed at, mocked, ridiculed for our faith. You may find yourself laughed at as you walk into a room full of colleagues or discover a whispering campaign of slander going on behind your back. These are the things that take place. Jewish believers are often insulted by the unbelieving Jewish community by being referred to as traitors, traitors to their people. In fact, over the years I've been told quite a few times that I cannot be Jewish anymore if I believe in Jesus. You're just not Jewish. In addition to these types of direct insults, we experience another type of insult by the way that the media today portrays Christians. We are almost always depicted on television or in films as self-righteous, hypocritical, 
bigoted, crooked, right-wing extremists. Now, when you are verbally abused, yes, it's painful, but you can take, you can take courage in the fact that you're not alone. Every believer goes through this at times. But what's most encouraging and helpful is to realize that Jesus himself endured much hostility that came in the form of verbal attacks and insults. For example, he was accused of being demonic. This is the sinless son of God. Pure holiness. And he's accused of being demonic. Of being born out of wedlock. Of being a Samaritan. Of being a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. I mean, he claimed to speak the truth and they said, you're blaspheming. When Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, that's the high Jewish council, after his arrest in Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68, they tell us that not only did they spit in his face and beat him with their fists and slap him, but he was verbally taunted. They mocked him by saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one who hit you? I mean, they're saying, if you're the Messiah, you know who hit you. Tell us. And in Mark 15, we read that the Roman soldiers also mocked Jesus as they beat him and spit on him by kneeling and bowing before him while they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They hated the Jewish people. And this is your King. Hail, King of the Jews. So when you're verbally abused, know that you're not alone. Jesus has experienced this too. So he understands. He understands experientially. Not only because he's God and knows everything, but he has experienced this. And he'll give you the grace to endure it, no matter how difficult it might be. So take courage. Now the fourth and the final way that Jesus said that we can expect to be persecuted is that some, he said, will scorn your name as evil. Not only are they going to reject and denounce you simply because you bear the precious name Christian, but they're also going to reject and denounce you by defaming your character and destroying your reputation. Jesus brought this out clearly in Matthew's version of this same beatitude when he said in Matthew 5:11, "Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you." That's the thought here. This scorning is the persecution of false accusations. It's really a hard type of persecution to handle because it is intentional, malicious slander for the purpose, the sole purpose of character assassination. The early Christians experienced this type of persecution when they were falsely accused of being atheists. You say, how could they be accused of being atheists? They're believers. Well, they didn't worship a visible deity. So the world said, you're atheists. They were also wrongly accused of being immoral because they met in secret places to celebrate the Lord's Supper with community meals called love feasts, so they assumed the worst. In addition, they were called unpatriotic because they refused to worship the Roman emperor. And Jesus himself knew the pain of having his own name scorned as evil when he was slanderously accused of being a gluttonous man and a drunkard. Folks, when you are accused of being something that you are not or doing something that you didn't do, you need to understand the reason behind attacks like this. And Peter, Peter addresses this very issue of why you're attacked this way. First Peter chapter 4, 3 and 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let me stop there and say, 
what Peter is saying is, it's over with you. Now that you're converted, you don't do this kind of stuff. You used to, but the time has passed. That's in your past, never to be revived again. Then he says in verse 4, in all this, they are surprised. Who are the they? The people used to do these things with. They're surprised that you don't run with them in the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. What Peter is telling us is that non-Christians get very upset when they lose one of their former companions and colleagues in sin to Christ and therefore to godly behavior and they resent it deeply so that they malign you. What does that mean? Well, it means they defame your reputation with false accusations. They malign you. They speak evil of you. They don't like it that you're not one of them anymore. Commenting on this type of personal attack, Bible teacher John Blanchard explained it this way. He said, when a man no longer uses foul language or swaps dirty jokes, when a businessman refuses any longer to engage in sharp practice, when a trader stops cutting corners, when Sunday is suddenly set apart for public worship, it'll not be long before the world reacts. Those who begin living transformed lives are likely to be accused of everything from fanaticism to Phariseeism and much more. So listen, no matter how hard you try to lead a blameless life, an exemplary life, you can be certain that somewhere, someone is going to accuse you of something of which you are not guilty. Notice what Paul said concerning his own life about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He said, giving no cause for offense in anything. He meant personal offense, not the gospel offense. But Paul is saying, I really tried not to give any personal offense in anything. I mean, this is why in our study on Sunday nights in 1 Corinthians 9, we see Paul went out of his way never to have anyone think that he was in ministry for money. So Paul just refused to take any money for his ministry. This is part of this, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, so that no one will say what a fake he is, what a phony he is, what a hypocrite he is. But in everything, Paul says, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and affliction and hardships and distresses. So listen, Paul worked very hard at not personally offending anyone so as not to give anyone a valid reason to discredit not only his ministry, but any man, any Christian's ministry. Yet, interestingly, throughout 2 Corinthians, we read how Paul was falsely accused of all sorts of evils. He's accused of not keeping his word. They said he's a liar. He said he'd visit us, but he hasn't come. He's accused of preaching a false gospel. Paul. He was accused of lacking courage. He was accused of stealing from the Corinthians. He was accused of being a false apostle and much more. And if you follow the Lord, you too will be accused of many things that are just not true about you. Listen, if the perfect Son of God was accused of being gluttonous and a drunkard, then don't think you're going to escape being slandered. It's going to happen. And when it does, you have to keep from becoming bitter and angry towards those who slander you. And the way to do this is by understanding that these attacks are not personal because they really aren't about you. They're about your Savior, about your Lord, Jesus Christ. You're being attacked only because you are following Christ. If you weren't following Christ, the world would love its own. 
You reflect His character. You live according to His righteous standards. And the world can't stand it. They hate it. We'll see this very clearly the next time we study this beatitude. But for right now, we need to grasp the truth that persecution for us is just inevitable. This doesn't mean that it's going to happen every day. But it does mean that it's going to happen from time to time. Because the Word of God says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And when it happens to you, you need to be prepared so that you don't back down, and this is a critical issue, you don't back down from compromising Scripture in order to avoid being persecuted. You don't back away and act like the world because the world will love its own. No, you continue to pursue righteousness and you will experience God's grace to endure it. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, then realize that you not only hate true Christians in your heart, but you actually hate Jesus Christ Himself because He's righteous and you're not. So let this understanding lead you to Christ, bring you to Him so that you'll believe on Him, so that you'll trust Him for your salvation, so that you can be forgiven of all of your sins and receive His perfect righteousness credited, reckoned, imputed to your account. That's the only hope we have in life. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, just just come up to the frontier. I'll be there and, and just see me and we'll connect you with one of our pastors. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this beatitude, Lord, as we've tried to unfold it. We pray that these truths will grip our hearts, that there'll be a seriousness about our Christian faith, that those who perhaps have never really taken their faith that seriously will, because they will be persecuted for you. So we pray, Lord, that you'll help us in this very ungodly world, only getting more ungodly, to live for you, to not go along with our culture, to recognize the sinfulness of our culture, and to rebuke, not only at times verbally, but by our very lives. Keep us, Lord, from self-righteousness. Help us to just stand up for you and to do what honors you. We pray, Lord, for those who may not know you, that you will draw them to yourself, that they might indeed come to faith in Christ and be saved from not only a life of sin, but from hell itself. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.